0: Scripture reading begins at Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 35 through 40. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, and the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will go out farther straight ahead to the hill Garib, and then it will turn to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. Now from Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion... He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience... So these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, those are the things that we have been celebrating as we have worshiped this morning. To you goes the glory. And we are grateful and joyful because what you have done. Please open our ears to hear the truth of your word as it is proclaimed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you, brother. Good morning. If you're going to title a sermon, How to Know When God is Done with Israel, you can be sure that you'll get in trouble with somebody when you preach that sermon. Honestly, I cannot get away from... The forcefulness of the passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, and I think we shouldn't underplay the forcefulness of this passage at all. God is spelling something out for us here in no uncertain terms, and I think it's something we all need to reckon with. Uh, I believe that we would be very hard pressed to identify a people on earth anywhere that has had so many other nations seek to enslave or destroy it across so many generations of mankind as the people descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Most of the first 400 years of Israel's existence was spent uh, as slaves in harsh bondage in Egypt. Egypt. After God delivered Israel from that slavery through ten mighty miracles, the king of Egypt changed his mind one more time and he sent his army after them. That entire Egyptian army drowned in the same body of water that Israel had just crossed through on dry land by the mighty deliverance of God. In the book of Numbers, Balak, king of Moab, offered a small fortune to a prophet named Balaam if Balaam would curse Israel. Balaam was not able to curse Israel. Instead, God cursed Balak through Balaam. Many years later, well into the period of the kings of Israel, the formidable kingdom of Assyria, took 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel into captivity into into Assyria and mixed them with many other conquered people in an effort to, in effect, dilute them out of existence. God still knows them all. Assyria tried to do the same thing to the remaining two tribes in the south, but they lost the lives of 186,000 Assyrian soldiers in a single night while they slept. And that was the end of their effort to take the remaining two tribes into captivity. In 70 AD, the Roman Emperor Tiberius destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and dispersed the Jews far and wide. In more recent times, at the height of the Third Reich, Adolf Hitler did everything in his power to exterminate the Jews As a race off the face of the earth, the modern nation of Israel has fought eight wars since 1947. In the Yom Kippur War alone in 1973, Israel's enemies included Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Algeria, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Cuba, and North Korea, who provided arms. Israel won. That battle started on October 6th. That ended on October 25th of 1973. In the early early part of this century, the Iranian cleric Ayatollah Khomeini and the Iranian president Mahud Ahmadinejad declared that Israel must be uprooted and wiped off the pages of history. That has not yet happened. The list that I just gave you is incomplete. But suffice it to say that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have have had many powerful enemies who have sought their end over a very large span of human history. And all of that animosity has been directed against a people who has, except during a very brief period of time under the reign of Solomon and during a very brief time, between the 67 war and the 73 war, never possessed a piece of real estate on this earth much bigger than the state of New Jersey. You wouldn't think that such a people would be quite so resilient for quite so long a time. Many years ago in my life, when I was very young in the Lord, I went to a conference conference taught by a man who had been raised as an Orthodox Jew, but had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His name was Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and some of you here know of his ministry quite well. Brother Fruchtenbaum said toward the beginning of that conference that by the end of the conference, we would know how to get rid of Israel. In the last message, he delivered the punchline. And the punchline, beloved, Is Jeremiah 31 verses 35 to 40. That passage answers the question very directly. It tells us what has to happen for Israel to cease to exist as a nation in the eyes of God and in the plan of God. God says straight up in this passage, here's how you'll know when I've had all I'm gonna, gonna take of Israel's stubborn and rebellious and stiff-necked Hearts. Or to use God's own words, here's how you will know when I have, quote, cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. Israel had done a lot against God. In fact, we've been seeing through the first 29 chapters of this book of Jeremiah God's itemization of the things that Israel and Judah had done against him. And we're going to see more. That list will be, be added to once we get past chapter 33. Israel and Judah had given, given God plenty of cause to be done with them. And not just every now and then, but for generation after generation of their history as a people. Here, according to Jeremiah 31 verses 35 through 37, is what would make God be done with Israel? And here are three three things that would have to happen. Somebody would have to do away with the fixed order of the sun and the moon and the stars and the sea. The second thing that would have to happen is that somebody would have to measure the universe. The third thing is that somebody would have to explore the depths of the earth, and I don't mean just the oceans. (laughs) Has that happened yet? As of last night, the moon and the stars appeared to me to be still pretty much where they've been since the constellations were first charted out by the earliest astronomers. And as of this morning, the sun appears to be pretty much where it's been since before people were around to see its light. So has the first condition been met? No. The waves of the sea continue to the tides and the waves continue to do their thing day by day how about the second condition well by the latest by the latest measurements of the observable universe through the hubble telescope astronomers declared that we can observe roughly 93 billion light years of space but they also say that that that's maybe a 1/250th of the actual universe and the honest astronomers and astrophysicists admit that their algorithms are extrapolations their guesses and that it's very possible that the universe is just simply infinite so has the second condition been met no how about the third condition i love this one search out the foundations of the earth The pressure in your car tires is roughly 30 to 40 PSI. The pressure at the earth's core is roughly 53 million PSI. The latest estimates of the temperature at the earth's core are between 8,000 and 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Anybody want to go explore that? So friends, is God done with Israel yet? I don't see any way that we can make this passage say anything other than that that, that there's no possibility that God is done with Israel yet. And, it, and, and to me, it really doesn't matter what your eschatology is. It doesn't matter what, what you, th- you think God is doing with Israel or how this is all going to proceed. God is not done with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what is God's plan for the people that He calls the offspring of Israel in this passage and that he called the house of Israel and the house of Judah in the verses just before it. Well, we can learn a lot about his answer to that question by seeing his plan for the city in which he intends to dwell with his people. And we see a lot about that plan right here in verses 38 through 40. God's plan for Jerusalem was pretty straightforward. Make all of it holy to the Lord. God says in Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 38, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt. For the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, the measuring line will go out, Farther, straight ahead to the hill Gareb, then it will turn to Goa, and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes, and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be holy to Yahweh. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore, forever. So there are two critical things to know about it. The whole city, including its the surrounding areas, will be made holy to the Lord, and secondly, it will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore, forever. God promises that the city of Jerusalem that was about to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, as he wrote these words, would be rebuilt. And he speaks of a measuring line that would go out to measure off the boundaries of the great city when God restores it. The early chapters of the book of Nehemiah record a real historic, historical rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem by the Judahites whom God brought back to the city of Jerusalem after the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah had foretold back in chapter 28 and 25. Nehemiah chapter 3 mentions some of the same landmarks that are spoken of here in Jeremiah 31, like the Tower of Hananel and the Horse Gate. The events in Nehemiah were a short-term, incomplete fulfillment of the prophecy through Jeremiah. Here in Jeremiah 31, it becomes clear that the promise that God is making goes much further than that short-term fulfillment in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Verse 40 of Jeremiah 31 says, "...and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes..." "...in all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to Yahweh." The brook Kidron is spoken of in Second Kings 23. It is the place outside Jerusalem where King Josiah burned the idol called Asherah, along with the idolatrous altars that Manasseh had created and disposed of the ashes there at the brook Kidron. Jeremiah here also mentions a place called the valley of dead bodies and of the ashes. What's that? I agree with Philip Ryken that that refers to the place that God called the valley of the slaughter back in Jeremiah chapter 7. It refers to the place where under Manasseh, the Israelites, the the Judahites, sacrificed their own sons and daughters they sacrificed their own sons and daughters to false gods and then they took the bodies and burned them they sacrificed them by burning and the ashes were laid there so the the valley of dead bodies and ashes is that valley of slaughter there could be no more unholy places in all of Judah than those the brook Kidron and the valley of slaughter And yet God promises the time is coming when even those unspeakably unholy places together with all of the great city of Jerusalem will be made holy to Yahweh. God's going to redeem all of it. And it will remain holy to Yahweh forever. Has that happened yet? The word picture here of God sending out a measuring line to measure the city, I love this. It's a it's a powerful image that shows up in other redemption passages in the Old Testament as well. If you're a homeowner, you know that the one thing that one of the things that the title company absolutely has to have in the documentation is a survey of the property. The people who are selling the property and and the people who are buying the property need to know what the property consists of. And so a survey is done if there if there isn't one available. Before you take possession of a place that you're going to live, you want to know what it consists of. God uses that same tradition and expectation as a picture of his intent to take possession of Jerusalem in order to live there together with his people. And he says so. He says so. In Ezekiel and again in Zechariah, God sends an angel to measure the city of Jerusalem. Because he, Yahweh, is getting ready to return to Jerusalem to dwell there with his redeemed people. In Ezekiel chapters 40 through 42, there's a, a man whose appearance is described in such a way that you can tell he's not really a man, he's an angel. <laughs> and he measures out the entire city of Jerusalem, the walls, the gates, the palace, the inside and outside of the temple. And then in chapter 43, after all that measuring has been done, we find out what it was for. God sent an angel to measure the city because he's going to come back there and he's going to live there with his people. Ezekiel 43, verse 7. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. Pretty graphic explanation. I mean, just very, very tangible. This is the place of the soles of my feet. God is speaking. Okay. We find the same imagery and outcome in Zechariah. Listen as I read Zechariah 1 verse 16 and chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares Yahweh of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 1, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem. To see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him and said to to him, run, speak to that young man, Zechariah, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares Yahweh, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Later in that same chapter, chapter 2, Jeremiah writes, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming. And I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations will join themselves to, to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst. When God repeats himself, we're supposed to pay attention. God's decree to measure Zion, Jerusalem, is Him declaring His intention to return to Jerusalem that He may dwell in that place together with His people forever. Zechariah chapter 14 says that that same redeemed city will be made entirely holy to Yahweh, just like He said through Jeremiah. Listen to Zechariah 14, verses 9-11. through And then 20 and 21. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day Yahweh will be the only one and His name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel... To the king's wine presses, people will live in it and there will no longer be a curse. There will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Verse 20, in that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to Yahweh. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to Yahweh of hosts. God is making ready a city for his people. A city in which he will dwell together with his people. And every part of that glorious place is going to be holy to the Lord, including the people. At the end of Isaiah chapter 59, God promises to send one that he calls his own arm to bring salvation to his people. In verse 20, he says a Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression, and Jacob declares the Lord. In the next verse, he declares, in effect, the same promise that he made through Jeremiah that we saw last week in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. He talks about writing his word, his his truth in their hearts. He says, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now on and forever. And then comes chapter 60 of Isaiah. Anybody know what's in there? (laughs) All of chapter 60. Speaks of the same wonderful redeemed place, Zion, Jerusalem, made new. It speaks of that city in terms unlike anything that men have ever seen on this earth. And it speaks of the one who redeemed both the city and its inhabitants. Isaiah chapter 60, starting at verse 1, God is talking to the redeemed city and he says, arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But Yahweh will rise upon you and His glory will appear upon you. And nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 14, and they will call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through you, (laughs) I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. See, there is an unbreakable connection between the return of the Redeemer to the city and the holiness of the city and its inhabitants. God is not going to dwell in an unholy place with unholy people. He's going to make both perfectly holy. God is not done with Israel. In Romans 11, verses 25-32, to we see some astonishing things presented. I'll come back to that passage in a moment, but let me say this. I... I believe that we are on very shaky ground if we say that God's special intention for the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has ended. If we say that God no longer has any special role for those descendants. In Matthew 21, at the end of the parable of the landowner and the rebellious vine growers, Jesus said to the Jews, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. it would be easy from that passage to conclude that God was done with Israel. That Israel as a people would never have a part in God's kingdom. But when Jesus said those words, the sun was still coming up in the morning, The moon was still in its place. The waves and the tides were still rising and falling on shorelines all over the earth. So God was not done with Israel. It was not unusual for God to turn His face away from Israel for a time and then to call them back to Him. In Jeremiah chapter 30, God declared that Israel's wound was incurable because their sin against Him was so grievous. And then He said, I will cure your wound and I will bring you back to myself. He declared that he, in the next chapter, chapter 31 of Jeremiah, that he'd make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah by which he would write his law on their hearts and make them know him personally, from the least of them to the greatest of them. In the book of Hosea, God declared that he had divorced Israel. Then he said he would make them who were not his people, his people. In Acts chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, who is Peter talking to? Acts chapter 3. He's talking to the apostate Jews in Jerusalem who had rejected Jesus to the point of demanding his execution at the heart, at the hands of godless men. And he said to those Jews, it is you who are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in you, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, Israel, God raised up His servant and sent him to bless you by turning everyone from your wicked ways. In John chapter 5, just before Jesus said to the Jews, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life, but it is these that speak of Me. Just before He said that, He said, these things I say, that you may be saved. How will God fulfill all of His covenant promises to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah? by bringing many descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ along with countless people from every tribe and tongue and nation on the face of the earth. God is not finished with Israel yet. How do I know that? Because the sun and the moon and the stars and the seas are still in their places. There's another basis upon which I am convinced that God is not finished with Israel yet. And that's because there has never yet been a wholesale revival of Jews to faith in Jesus Christ. There has never yet been a turning to Jesus on a national scale among the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I believe with all my heart that that is coming. In Romans 11, verses 25-32, to Paul says, I do not want you brethren, you Gentile brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus, all Israel will be saved. Just as, as it is written, the Deliverer, will come from Zion, He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. Do you know how many times in the Old Testament God prophesies that He's going to take away the sins of the house of Israel and the house of Judah? It's over and over and over and over again. Paul goes on in Romans 11 to tell us some more about God's not-yet-finished plan for Israel. And this is astonishing. He says, From the standpoint of the Gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, Gentile Christians. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You know what irrevocable means? It can't be undone. For just as you, Gentiles, were once disobedient, disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, the Jews, so these also, the Jews, now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that He may show mercy to all. Does that sound like God is finished with His plan of redemption for Israel? I'm I'm just looking at the plain sense of the word, guys. Of the words. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I don't know, man. It just looks so plain to me. God has not yet turned large numbers of Jews back to Himself through their jealousy over His grafting in of Gentiles like us, like many of us in this room, into the promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And until that has happened, I'm pretty sure that He's not finished with Israel yet. One more thing. I do not believe... That Israel will continue to exist as a distinct people in the eyes of God in the eternal state in the New Jerusalem. And here's why those three things. And listen as I read Isaiah chapter 60, verses 18 to 22. God is talking to his city. His redeemed city, Jerusalem, Zion. He says, violence will not be heard in your land again, nor devastation or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates will be called praise. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness Will the moon give you light, but you will have Yahweh for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will set no more, neither will your moon wane, for you have the Lord for an everlasting light and the days of your morning will be finished. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified." In Revelation 21, verse 1, John is given a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And what does he say? He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. The fixed order of the sun and the moon and the stars and the sea is gone. It's replaced. The earth all the way to its elements is burned up and replaced. In verses 23-24, to 24, he says in the city, Revelation 21, verses 23-24, the city has no need. Just He says what Isaiah said. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. God declares Himself that when the new Jerusalem comes, the fixed order of the sun and the moon and the stars and the sea will cease as we know it now. Through both Isaiah and John, He said that in the new Jerusalem, those things will be gone. They will be changed. All will be made new. And when that day comes, (laughs) beloved, when that day comes, that which is already true in the body of Christ will be true in all of the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no distinction between Jew and Gentile, slave and free man, male and female, for we will all be sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We today in the body of Christ are all one in Christ. And if we belong to Christ, then we are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. None of this means that anybody gets to know exactly when or how God will carry out his redemptive intention for Israel. The verses that I want all of us to walk away thinking about really hard are in Romans 11 verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became His counselor or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. You and I should not get too excited about our preferred view of end times. (laughs) If our favorite theological system doesn't leave us humbly saying the same thing about God that Paul says right there, then our favorite theological system is too precise. Another thing that I must say is that Christians absolutely must not take and Israel can do no wrong approach to current events. What that does is it, is it creates an impediment to the gospel that should not exist. Israel, friends, is not in the land in our present day by divine right. They are in the land by divine mercy. Just as was the case the first time they came into the land... Before the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ever set foot in the land of promise, Deuteronomy chapter 9 said that they didn't deserve to be there. Read it. Treating the Jews as if they have a right to dwell right now in the land that was promised to their forefathers is actually a flat-out denial of God's own very clear declarations Concerning the Jews. See, until God... And and we as Christians need to be saying this. We need to be saying it to each other too. None of us deserve anything from God. You know what inheritance we deserve? Hell. Until God brings a person, Jew or Gentile, into union with Jesus Christ through faith in Him alone, that's all we deserve. It's all that we've earned. The wages of sin, beloved, is eternal death. But a day is certainly coming when men, women, and children will dwell together in a land made new as one people made new by grace alone through faith alone in the One who makes all things new, Jesus Christ alone. Then and only then will we dwell together with God in the land of promise as a people made worthy to dwell with God. And the one and only thing that will ever make any of us worthy in that day and for all eternity is the precious blood of our perfectly righteous Savior and Redeemer and King Jesus. In that day and at that time, it will be said as God declared to John the Apostle in Revelation 21.3, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is among men and He shall dwell among them and they shall be His people and God Himself shall be among them and the conclusion that we must that we must see in all of this is that it's all about Jesus. The redemption is about the redeemer. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to Jeremiah 33 which we'll look at again later but the connection between that passage and this one in Jeremiah 31 is is powerful and it's exceeding, exceedingly important. It's very personal. All of these promises in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and many other passages in both Testaments, promises about the redeemed people living in the redeemed city with God dwelling right there in the midst of us, all of it is about the Redeemer who makes all of it happen. Every prophecy of that day when God will dwell in the land of promise with His people is fulfilled only in one person, Jesus, the long-promised King and Savior. Listen to Jeremiah 33, which which picks up again on the behold, days are coming theme that pervades these chapters in Jeremiah. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety, and this is the name by which she shall be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Not, not the Lord made us righteous, but the Lord is our Righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. God's plan of redemption is all about our Redeemer, the long-promised Messiah. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of David, who will reign on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish and uphold that kingdom in justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Loving Father, your ways are not our ways. And Father, we confess that, that your ways are unsearchable and your judgments are unfathomable. And as we read these things and ponder these things, we simply we fall on our knees before you and we say, we say, Praise and glory and honor be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We confess, Lord, that Your plan of redemption is perfect. And we, we wait eagerly, Lord, to behold every last bit of it until the day that we stand as one people, redeemed in the beautiful place made new, together with our Master, our Savior, our God. Lord Jesus Christ, it's in His name that we pray.
0: Amen.